Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 97, A New Century. Now, first, I have a lot of thank yous to new Patreon supporters. I don't know what happened to everyone. I know some of the podcasts I've listened to have mentioned that uh, September's podcast is kind of appreciation month. A lot of places are doing kind of fundraising drives and things. So maybe that got people inspired. But, you know, we've got Svetoslav Vasilenov, Jason Francis, Barry Lynch, Marine Kojivanov, and Delian Christoph, all as new supporters. So thanks so much to all of you. I haven't seen a, a kind of Russian new support like this in years. It really means a lot. And yeah, uh, I'm excited now that we're almost getting to the 19th century. For those of you, I know there's a lot eagerly awaiting that. I anticipate around the end of this year, beginning of next year, we're going to get into the 19th century. Although, Frankly, now I can't believe we're finally in the 18th century. Uh, you know, been doing this for so many years, covering so much history. It feels almost surreal to finally reach uh, a new, it's more modern period to kind of really firmly get out of the Middle Ages and the kind of early modern period and start to get into something new. So that's going to be exciting, some different kinds of history, and we'll see how the podcast evolves. All right, so. Last time, we saw several uprisings in response to Austrian forces finally closing in on core Ottoman territories in the Balkans, only to be brutally crushed as the Austrians themselves were pushed back from Belgrade as they faced the pressure of a French invasion on their far western frontier. Still, the Austrians did manage to fight the Ottomans to a stalemate. Elsewhere, the Poles and Russians managed to make meaningful progress as the Ottomans made gains in Morea. The death of Sultan Suleiman II, and then within a few years his brother Ahmed, finally brought a new generation of rulers to the throne in the form of the 31-year-old Sultan Mustafa. Ultimately, though, the war had to end, resulting in the treaties of Karlovitz and Constantinople. The Ottomans lost Hungary, the Azov region, Transylvania, as well as much of Croatia and Slavonia. To the Venetians, they also lost Dalmatia and what would now become the newly independent Kingdom of Morea in southern Greece. The Poles also took a little bit of territory, including, including some kind of often contested fortresses. The long Turkish war had left the Ottomans in a very different state. It's easy to forget that at the start of this conflict, the Ottomans were marching to Vienna, looking to looking actually fairly likely to conquer the city and firmly expand their influence into Central Europe. But by the end of the war, the Ottomans had lost vast territories and were firmly out of Central Europe, as well as you know being in a situation where their economy was in quite bad shape with local manufacturing really beginning to lose out to European imports and a debased currency holding little value. So, we're now at the year 1700. It's a new century and a new reality in the Balkans. One place facing that new reality and really facing it quite difficultly, was Morea. There, the war created a demographic and economic crisis. Just after the war, the Venetians conducted a census, which confirmed that roughly 200,000 people living on the peninsula before the war 
And of those people, really only about 86,000 remained. So, you know, the population had been more than cut in half. So the first mission of Venice was to get the new kingdom in a position where it could defend itself. That meant pushing immigration, which successfully got the population all the way up to 250,000 in just nine years. Still, they faced other major problems. The Greek Orthodox population was grateful to be liberated from the Ottomans, but much less excited to go from the kind of general autonomy they experienced under Ottoman rule to much more direct and bureaucratic Venetian rule. The Catholic religion of the Venetians definitely didn't help either. But Venice was determined to maintain its foothold, and so it built many fortifications throughout the peninsula in preparation for another war with the Ottomans, which, as always, really seemed inevitable. Back in Constantinople, the Grand Vizier was attempting to fix the empire's finances just as the Sultan himself was really retreating from court life, moving to the old capital of Edirne and giving the Vizier basically full reign to rule in his stead. With this power, tobacco was legalized and taxed, while tax farming expanded, resulting in a budget surplus within a fairly short period of time. However, the way this was done by granting the right to be a tax farmer for life instead of just seasonally, well, this had some other kind of implications. This built closer ties between the regional elites and the central government, but it's also going to cause a lot of problems. Now, as we've discussed, tax farming is really highly inefficient, with only around 20% of the taxes raised actually making it to Constantinople. As a result, The peasants are basically bled dry, and regional elites are fat and happy as they're often getting these tax farming contracts. Still, as a result of this, the budget surplus gradually, and uh, maybe not so gradually, turned back into a deficit, and the government was really starting to strain to pay its soldiers. But the soldiers really were an even bigger problem than the taxing kind of system, and more specifically, as always, the Janissaries. Before the end of the Long Turkish War, the number of Janissaries had actually increased to 70,000. But of those 70,000, only about 10,000 were actual, you know, fighters or soldiers. And, well, we're seeing a pattern here, right? 20% of the taxes make it to the government. 14% of the elite soldiers are actually soldiers. A lot of inefficiencies to kind of go around. In his book, The Ottoman Empire, 1700-1923, historian Donald Quartert says, quote, the discipline and rigorous training marking this once elite fire-armed infantry had disappeared by 1700, transforming the corps from the terror of its foreign foes to the terror of the sultans, end quote. Now, that really is a great way to frame it. By this point, they truly were the terror of the sultans. The Janissaries were a power which could drag the sultan's administration down and replace them nearly at whim. Now, also a quick note relating to the Janissaries. I mentioned some years ago that the last Devshirme was collected in Bulgaria. Well, it's around this time that the final one is collected really anywhere. Thus, the Janissaries' transformation from an organization entirely different from its origins was complete. They had now completely shifted from an organization that was, you know, fed by these sort of blood taxes, right? The taking and converting of children from the Balkans. Now that's over with. Now the Janissaries 
are basically just a hereditary organization, which doesn't really fight that much. And well, we'll talk in a minute about all the other things that they're doing. But just note that the Dev Shirme is now over. Now, in order to save money and reduce the political power of the Janissaries, the decision was made to cut their number in half and instead rely on the Temariots as a new power base. Remember, the Temeriots were Ottomans that were given land to govern in exchange for providing cavalry to the army, a pretty typical kind of feudal system. However, this Ottoman cavalry was increasingly militarily obsolete, even by this point, and had been replaced for decades because the central government was more interested in using tax farming to extract cash from its lands rather than getting poorly performing cavalry from these lands. Still, Sultan Mustafa had little other choice. So he finally made the Timar land rights hereditary. Up to this point, they hadn't been to avoid creating a landed aristocracy. So if you were a Timariot, you were given that land for your lifetime. And once you died, maybe the Sultan would give it to your kids, but probably not. The idea here of making this hereditary was, okay, we're going to create a landed aristocracy, but at least they will be loyal to the Sultan. It really shows how desperate the Ottomans were to try to find some way, any way, to create a kind of power base that's loyal to the Sultan, that can resist the Janissaries. And they're really willing to sacrifice cash in the in the treasury. They're willing to sacrifice effective military organization, just about anything if they can just get a loyal power base to support the Sultanate and avoid being overthrown. So while up to this point, the Ottomans had always greatly resisted allowing a landed aristocracy to develop, now they were okay with it. So between lifelong tax farming grants and hereditary to Marriott titles, the government was also effectively decentralizing in an effort to balance the power of the Janissaries. So yes, while all these are designed to kind of increase the power of the Sultan, the way they're doing that is to create all these local power bases. So yeah, there's a, it's kind of a centralizing element, but largely this is decentralizing the empire in order to gain personal support for the Sultan. But besides distributing more power to regional elites, the Sultan's presence in Edirne had also created a rival power base to that of Constantinople. Of course, wherever the Sultan goes, right, he has some people around him, some court and everything. And so now there's kind of two courts in a way, the one in Constantinople and the one in Edirne. The resulting battle between them saw Edirne win out and the vizier ultimately resigned, though health problems also played a role. With his resignation, the last Koprulu, and therefore the end of the Koprulu era of competent grand viziers, was over, right? This is the end of that line, there's no more Koprulus to run things. They had, I I think off the top of my head, maybe six grand viziers over a very, very long period. So this is a sort of definitive family that, again, we name an entire era after. But this is the end. Now, while the Sultan uh, was kind of in the process of implementing all these policies, though, trouble was brewing in western Georgia along the Black Sea coast. There, some small states were Ottoman tributaries, but they began fighting amongst themselves and now refused to pay their tribute. To make matters worse, they began engaging in pirating along the coast, disrupting the peace of the Ottoman Lake, as the Black Sea was at that time. Remember, 
through the conquest of Azov, though, Russia was starting to get involved, at least in the Sea of Azov, but still, the Ottomans really dominate the Black Sea. Now, the Ottomans had largely stayed out of more direct involvement in Georgia, but at this point, not wanting to lose yet more territory right after the losses of the Treaty of Karlovitz, and fearful of Russian expansion into the area, Mustafa II gathered an army in 1703 to go and restore order. Three columns attacked western Georgian territories in the summer, making quick gains and effectively conquering the area in a few short months. Meanwhile, a second army of Janissaries was preparing for the conflict in Constantinople. These soldiers had not been paid. Remember, the tax farming was no longer bringing in enough revenue, and, well, they were pretty angry about it, as well as angry that the sultan was no longer in the capital. So you can see the opportunity that arises. So, no shock to anyone, a Janissary revolt broke out, which was soon joined by lower-ranking artisans as well as the kind of religious class. Soon, this rebel army was marching towards Edirne. The sultan quickly deposed the unpopular new grand vizier, but it wasn't enough. The rebels wanted Sultan Mustafa gone. The sultan attempted to defend Edirne, but his troops defected to the rebels. So, the sultan was soon captured and deposed in favor of his brother Ahmed, who soon became Sultan Ahmed III. Mustafa was imprisoned in the palace where he died within months, though there's no record of what specifically killed him. Ahmed III was 30 years old, and so had actually been born in what's now the Bulgarian city of Dobrich. So, incidentally, you wouldn't expect it, but there is a sultan, an Ottoman sultan, born in a Bulgarian city. But even with the ascension of a new sultan, violence continued in Constantinople as undisciplined Janissaries showed off their new power to depose sultans at will and competed over the lavish coronation gifts which they expected to receive from Ahmed. Much of the palace silver was ultimately melted down to make the payment to the Janissaries. Once Ahmed was on the throne, he refused to pay for the ongoing war in Georgia, and so a quick peace was agreed. But the Georgians then ambushed the retreating Ottoman force, killing most of them. This loss on the empire's western frontier was, of course, duly noted by the expanding Russian Empire, and really made things look even worse than they had just three years earlier when the Treaty of Karlovitz was signed. Now the question was, just what would Sultan Ahmed do now that he was in charge and the Sultan had been moved back to Constantinople? Well, instead of attempting to work with his Grand Vizier to resist the power of the Janissaries and enact needed reforms, he decided to immediately embark on the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. He was gone for three years, leaving an empire in crisis, broke, militarily and territorially weakened, and in desperate need of strong leadership. Historian Suraya Farouki wrote that, quote, While in the 16th century, or even the early 17th century, the power of the sultans had been respected and even feared, this was no longer true after the numerous Ottoman defeats in the wars of 1683 to 1718, end quote. And, well, we're really seeing that play out. But before he left on the Hajj, Ahmed did appoint a new ruler of Moldavia, Mihai Rakovice, who, like many of his predecessors, increased taxes to fund the fighting off of his rivals for power. To do this, 
he relied on the backing of Greek families in Constantinople. But he was soon replaced by Antioch Cantemir, son of Constantine Cantemir, who had ruled Moldavia about 15 years earlier. The reason for his replacement was his failure to make tribute payments to the Ottomans. But Antioch soon engaged in talks with Poland and Russia, interested in possibly working with them against the Ottomans. Well, no surprise then, he was soon replaced by Mihai once again. But the Moldavians and Georgians weren't the only ones looking for backing from Russia to oppose the Ottomans. In 1704, two Bulgarians went to the court of Tsar Peter the Great to ask for assistance. While nothing could be done at that moment, the Bulgarians wouldn't have to wait long. The Voivoda of Wallachia was also in discussion with the Russians as well as the Habsburgs. So, clearly the residents of the Balkans saw this as a moment where, you know, if they could just get some help from one of the great European powers, they could finally make some progress against the Ottomans. In 1709, the Battle of Poltava saw Russia deliver a decisive blow against the Swedish Empire, as well as an attempt to establish an independent Ukraine. The Ukrainians had sided with the Swedes. Following the battle, the remains of the Swedish army and their wounded king, Charles XII, retreated to the Ottoman-controlled fortress of Bender, now Bender in Transnistria, which is within Moldavia, a weird, weird little place to visit where I was once detained by some soldiers. It's a long story. Unsurprisingly, though, the Russians demanded that the Ottomans give up their guest. They were not happy to let this king of their rival state escape. When Ahmed refused, Tsar Peter declared war, while also calling on the entire Orthodox population of the Balkans to rise up against the Ottomans. Unfortunately, it seems only the Montenegrins and some people in Herzegovina really did, despite, of course, these Bulgarian envoys recently requesting Russia to provide just this kind of help. As mentioned, the leaders of Wallachia and Moldavia were in discussion with the Russians, and soon the Treaty of Lutsk cemented an alliance between Moldavia and Russia. For now, the Wallachians were staying out. Of course, they were closer to the Ottoman mainland and therefore a bit more vulnerable. An Ottoman army gathered and met the Russian and Moldavian forces near the Prut River floodplain. The river now forms a border between Romania and Moldavia, so you can get an idea of where this is. The Ottomans surrounded the Allies and quickly forced them to surrender. Still, another Russian force managed to get further south into Wallachian territory. The Wallachian voivod was ready to side with whichever side seemed likely to win, but several of his boyars quickly defected to the Russians, effectively forcing his hand. So, together, the Wallachians and the Russians worked to conquer an important fortress and kind of on the border down there. But this victory couldn't offset the loss of that main army near the Prut River. And the Great Northern War with Sweden was still going on, and so, well, the Russians couldn't stay distracted forever. As a result, they signed the Treaty of the Pruth, returning the recently conquered Azov region to the Ottomans and forcing the Russians to stay out of Polish-Lithuanian affairs. Many later writers have criticized the Grand Vizier for deciding to sue for peace at this moment, as he really could have easily captured and imprisoned Tsar Peter before marching to Moscow. Although, evidently there were reports of a Safavid attack in the east, which pushed the Ottomans towards a quick peace. Also, frankly, seeing the immense difficulty that the Russians had moving vast armies and you know, providing logistics from 
kind of the Russian heartland all the way down towards the Black Sea, doing the reverse and having the Ottomans uh, have, you know, substantially longer supply lines trying to get all the way to Moscow seems unlikely to me. But still, people do criticize the Grand Vizier for his decision. Now, Charles, the King of Sweden, was still taking refuge in the Ottoman Empire and pushed Sultan Ahmed to return to war in order to, well, obviously help Sweden. Ultimately, though, the Ottomans did briefly declare war, but Ahmed then rejected this idea, returned Charles home to Sweden, and signed the Treaty of Edirne two years later, reconfirming the peace with Russia and setting a kind of peace period of 25 years between the empires. Now, of course, it was time for the Ottomans to deal with Wallachia and Moldavia. As a consequence of their betrayal, the Wallachian voivoda was imprisoned and tortured while his sons were beheaded, except for the one who had betrayed the news of his father's talk with the Habsburgs to the Ottomans. This son, Stefan, became the new ruler of Wallachia. Now, in Moldavia, the betrayal had been worse, and so the Ottomans took a far more substantial action. The entire traditional system by which the Moldavian boyars would play some part in electing their own leader was abolished. Moldavia would now be ruled by Greek Phanariot families appointed directly by Constantinople. Now, in Bulgaria, although there had been no significant uprising, the Sultan still ordered that weapons be confiscated from Christians living in Silistra, Viden, Chirmen, and Lozengrad. Now, feeling emboldened by their recent victory and knowing that Venice was diplomatically isolated as the whole kind of all the other major European powers were really caught up in that great northern war between Sweden and Russia as well as the war of Spanish succession the Ottomans decided that this was the moment to retake Morea the Venetians had been taking Ottoman ships and giving refuge to the leader of the Montenegrin uprising against them so the Ottomans had all the pretext they needed to go straight to war They gathered 70,000 troops in Macedonia in 1715 in preparation for the offensive. Now, while the Venetians had fortifications on the peninsula, they could only muster about 8,000 mostly mercenaries to meet the Ottomans. Thus, many of the fortifications that they had just built, with great expense obviously, had to be left unmanned. Even the local Greeks weren't of any help. As you will recall, they were very dissatisfied with Venetian rule. As a result, the Ottomans quickly took Corinth and advanced into Morea, leaving destruction in their wake. The main Venetian fortress fell after just nine days, and within just about three months, most of the remaining fortresses negotiated their surrender in exchange for safe passage home. So, just like that, while barely breaking a sweat, the Ottomans retook Morea. The Ottomans now turned to the Venetian-controlled Ionian Islands. They soon landed a force and began besieging the fortress on the main island of Corfu. However, this time the resistance was fierce, and after suffering casualties in a great storm, the Ottomans withdrew. Meanwhile, another Ottoman army of 40,000 attacked and failed to take the Venetian-held city of Sinja in Dalmatia. The presence of Ottoman forces in the area worried Austria, but Before they could declare war, the Ottomans did them one better, and, well, declared war on them. Obviously, the Ottomans were feeling pretty good about themselves, and they were suddenly willing to take everybody on. So, 
Just 17 years after the Treaty of Karlovitz, the Ottomans were now determined to avenge all of their losses and continue their winning streak, and so they declared war on Austria. Soon, 150,000 Ottoman soldiers were gathered at Belgrade. They began their advance in July, with one arm moving east and quickly taking Transylvania, while the other headed north. The Austrian and Ottoman armies met at the fortress of Petrovaradin, now in the Serbian city of Novi Sad, on the Danube. The Ottomans attacked the fortress, but were drawn in and subsequently encircled by Austrian cavalry. Around two-thirds of the Ottomans, including the Grand Vizier, were killed in a devastating defeat. Now, it was the Austrians' turn to go on the offensive, turning to the fortress city of Timisoara. Although an important city and fortress in what's now western Romania, Timisoara's defenses were far from modern, mostly made of wood and packed earth. They barely stood a chance against modern artillery. The Austrians made good progress against the fortress for the first 25 days of the siege. Then, Ottoman reinforcements from Belgrade arrived. They attempted coordinated attacks with the troops inside of the fortress, but the coordination was off and the Austrians were able to repulse attacks from both sides without too much trouble. Finally, about a month and a half after the start of the siege, the Ottomans surrendered on the condition their forces would be allowed to retreat to Belgrade. This was allowed, though the Austrians of course knew they would face these men again in battle. It was now October, and so the Austrian army returned to Novi Sad for the winter. But come spring, Belgrade itself would be the target. Meanwhile, in 1716, a Bulgarian Catholic named Georgi Pajecevic attempted to work with the Austrians to organize a new uprising around Vidin, and, well, the Ottomans brought the same direct Venerian rule they had in Moldavia to Wallachia, clearly worried about Wallachia's proximity to this new conflict and that their vassal state would change sides. As 1717 dawned, the Austrians had one primary objective, retaking the vital fortress of Belgrade. It was a powerful defensive fortification that could be used as a staging point for Ottoman advances north or Austrian advances south, depending on who controlled it. The Austrian army left Novi Sad in May with around 100,000 soldiers, along with 50 ships on the Danube to attack Belgrade from the water and ensure it could be fully blockaded. They reached Belgrade in June, crossing the Sava River twice to surprise the Ottomans, who were not expecting an attack from that side and, well, didn't do well as a result. Austrian soldiers dug in, knowing the fortress, defended by 30,000 Ottomans, would not fall easily, and knowing that an Ottoman relief army was on its way. That army arrived in July. But instead of attacking the Ottoman force, it also dug in. The Austrians were now stuck between a powerful fortress and a relief army, with malaria and Ottoman artillery slowly taking their toll. In this situation, the Ottomans were content to let attrition do their work, which is why the relief army chose to besiege the Austrians instead of just attacking. But on August 14th, a massive explosion shook the entire battlefield. An Austrian mortar shell had scored a direct hit on an Ottoman gunpowder magazine in the fortress. The resulting explosion killed 3,000 Ottomans almost instantly, about 10% of their strength extinguished in a moment. Knowing this was perhaps their only chance to get out of this tricky situation, 
the Austrians scheduled an attack at midnight. This night attack shocked the Ottomans, and the fighting went on for ten bloody hours. As the sun rose towards midday, the Austrians had taken the Ottoman trenches and won the day. The relief army was defeated, and the remaining 10,000 or so men in Belgrade soon surrendered. Just like that, the Ottomans had lost more than 20,000 soldiers, along with immense amount of equipment and supplies. Now, during the previous two years, as the Venetian War with the Ottomans was slowing down but still ongoing, the Papal States had been attempting to form another Holy League. But with Spain exhausted from the War of Spanish Succession, Portugal and Malta were the countries that joined kind of in its stead. This alliance was formalized in early 1717, and around the same time the Austrians were kind of laying siege to Belgrade, and the combined fleets met an Ottoman fleet on the southern tip of Greece. In the subsequent naval battle, the Holy League was victorious. But like many of the naval battles of this war, it had very little impact on the greater conflict. Still, this battle helped reinforce the status quo in which the Ottomans could only really dominate the eastern Mediterranean as they gradually fell behind in naval technology. Now, throughout the remainder of 1717, the Venetians took some territory in Greece and Herzegovina, but with their loss of Morea and the Austrian advance to Belgrade, the war was winding down and negotiations had begun. The Treaty of Posadovitz was signed in the summer of 1718. It essentially reflected the military reality on the ground. The Ottomans retained the Greek territory they had conquered, effectively kicking the Venetians out of Greece and Crete. However, they did lose territory in modern Serbia and Bosnia to the Austrians. This resulted in the establishment of the Kingdom of Serbia as a Habsburg crown land, given pretty substantial autonomy. Thus, the Ottomans had made a comeback against the Venetians while lost, losing yet more ground in the Balkans to the Austrians. Venice remained a power in decline, the Ottoman navy remained an increasingly weak force, and the Austrians expanded their empire ever more. With these mixed results, no doubt Bulgarians of the empire were wondering whether there was Austrian liberation or even independence in their future, or whether they might face the same fate as those southern Greeks. Next time, we'll enter a new era of Ottoman history and see those questions answered. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And you can see the blog post with all the photos and maps and timelines and important characters for this episode in the episode description.